had some success early on in the mail business back in 99, sold that company, then got into piracy and protecting kind of digital rights as these studios would move digital content online, sold that, had a nice exit there. Now raised 30-ish, 35-ish million to launch Speed Vegas. Uh, they did about 10 million bucks their first year. This is the Top Entrepreneurs Podcast, where founders share how they started their companies and got filthy rich or crash and burn. Each episode features revenue numbers, customer counts, and other insider information that creates business news headlines. We went from a couple of hundred thousand dollars to 2.7 million. I had no money when I started the company. It was $160 million, which is the size of many IPOs. We're bootstrapped. We have like 22,000 customers. With over 5 million downloads in a very short amount of time, major outlets like Inc. are calling us the fastest growing business show on iTunes. I'm your host, Nathan Latka, and here's today's episode. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Aaron Fessler. He's, an, he's a successful entrepreneur who has founded, built, and sold multiple successful organizations. In 2012, he was awarded the Entrepreneur Startup Award of the Year by the Entrepreneur's Organizations, that's EO. Fessler is the founder and CEO of Speed Vegas, a 100-acre exotic car driving experience in Las Vegas. Prior to that, he created Media Century, which became the largest provider of anti-piracy services for the motion picture and recording industries. Major clients included Sony, Warner Brothers, Fox Disney, and MGM. The company was acquired by SafeNet in 2005 in a $20 million cash and stock transaction. Previously, he founded the Allegro Group, which grew to become the largest provider of email services in the U.S. The platform managed corporate messaging for Ford, Mercedes, Continental Airlines, and eight of the 10 largest law firms in the U.S., which was, and the company was acquired by Mail.com in 99 for $40 million in a cash and stock transaction. Aaron, are you ready to take us to the top? I am. Thank so you. you. Good, good to speak with you. Yeah, so you had good timing back in 99. I assume if you got an exit price of $40 million, you sold right before the crash happened, huh? Well, look, it, it, we were building the business in Ohio, and uh, we were more focused on the bottom line. Uh, this idea of eyeballs and impressions and page views was a pretty foreign concept to us. Uh-huh. At the end of the day, we built something that was of real value. It spit off real cash and, and had real enterprise value, and there were a lot of folks building dot-com companies that didn't have that, so we were very attractive. Is a modern-day version of that, you describe it as an email services provider. Are we talking like a modern-day version might be a MailChimp or a SendGrid kind of company? Yes, it was one of the very first software-as-a-service platforms. We charged monthly recurring fees to help companies manage threats uh, in their email, things like viruses and profanity, pornography, uh, racial slurs, and things like that. It was um, one of the early uh, um, software-as-a-service uh, applications. I'm curious what the multiple was back then. What was the trailing 12 months revenue on that? We were uh, Our trailing 12 was around $12 million bucks at the time. Okay, so you got like, like two and a half, three X. That's pretty good. Four, over, over three X. We were pleased, but um, I'm, I'm often reminded of, of uh, something my next door neighbor said. He said he made all this money by selling too soon. <laughs> and uh, we, we looked with chagrin as others exited uh, the space doing similar types of things in 2000, 2001. One was Brightmail, which sold for about $400 million. The exact same platform, similar revenue, an impressive company. But uh, you always wonder what would have happened if you'd stayed a bit longer. You Did you hold on to your Mail.com stock or did you sell it immediately? Uh, I have a couple of um, uh, bathrooms in my home that are wallpapered with stock options and stock from mail.com. Uh, I was going to uh, say, if you, if you didn't sell those quick, you lost a sh- your shirt on that. That's, that's, that's a very much what happened in that deal. Um, you know, I was young. I didn't understand risk like I understand now. Uh-huh. Uh, and I got just as caught up in what could be uh, with uh, the value of the stock uh, as everybody else. So that one wasn't a complete home run from the stock. So maybe you feel like you sold that one early, but it looks like you 
potentially did that again with Media Century. So 2005, you sell for 20 million. Now we've got data breaches that are ruining, you know, show and TV and movie launches. Uh, did you sell that one too early? No, I think uh, at the time, uh, what made that business so attractive is uh, there were many large organizations, primarily movie studios and record labels, that had massive amounts of intellectual property in a digital format. And uh, they were seeing the onslaught from all these peer-to-peer applications like Napster and Kazaa and Shazam, those sorts of things, that were really chipping away at the fundamentals of the business. And while at the time there were a lot of people that were thinking really hard about how to build clever peer-to-peer applications, we took the different approach. We said, how can we help people that own intellectual property protect it? And this was before the advent of, of uh, iTunes and Spotify and those sorts of things. So there was a lot of motivation and interest in protecting uh, the legacy distribution networks like CDs and DVDs and all that. But you can sort of see the handwriting on the wall, right? So once it got to the point where everything became digital and the distribution uh, over the Internet became prevalent and Spotify and iTunes and those sorts of things came out, their appetite in, in, in suppressing a piracy would begin to drop. Uh, so we really kind of uh, uh, straddled that, that narrow window where people still had a lot of physical uh, uh, distribution, but it was transitioning to, to digital, and we wanted to help them protect that. So we did sell that at a good time. Uh, today, really, uh, you know, you look at uh, the, the big intellectual property companies, they're not investing big dollars in, in suppressing piracy. Really? A lot, yeah, much more interested in fostering online uh, distribution. So Interesting. If, if I was today, and I could spend a million dollars on protecting myself from piracy or a million dollars on promoting Spotify, I'm going to go with Spotify. That's fascinating to hear you say that because I mean, I'll, you know, you'll watch the Emmys and you'll see a bunch of people that took home videos and put it on YouTube and the day after you'll see content has been removed. I assume whoever owns the Emmys has some script that ties into YouTube and automatically pulls that down based off, you know, audio patterns and things like that. But what you're saying is it might seem like that's bad for these things, but they actually like it. It's a free form of marketing. The size of the opportunity is, is not substantial. I would be surprised if the size of that total market today for intellectual property protection is more than 25 or $50 million. The application that you described at YouTube is because some of these large content um, uh, platforms like YouTube have brought that functionality in-house. Uh, so they now have uh, integration directly with uh, studios and labels to quickly identify and take down what, what people believe are infringing pieces of content. Okay, exotic car racing in Vegas. How does this happen from a, a guy that's in the mail space and the piracy space? Well, look, I spent a, a, a long uh, period of time developing technology. I love technology, but uh, after selling uh, Media Century in, in 2005, I thought I'd try something different. And um, uh, ultimately, that journey led to building a 100-acre motorsports complex on I who maybe read a car magazine, perhaps put a helmet on once in their life, can look at a, a lineup of amazing cars, point to one and say, you know what, I think that's fun. I'd like to try that. Interesting. And what, I mean, is it like a go, should we think of this like a go-kart track, but for rich adults? Uh, it's a mile and a half track. It's uh, just a few miles south of the uh, the center of Las Vegas. Uh, it was designed from scratch, from the ground up, as a place for you to drive a Ferrari, drive a Lamborghini, any really amazing exotic supercar. We give you a few minutes of instruction, <coughs> and buckle you in, and off you go. So it's really a neat place if you're doing something that's uh, um, a, a, a lifelong fantasy of driving a Ferrari or Lamborghini where you can do that safely in Las Vegas. What is the, so what's the average customer spend on a trip to you per person? Sure. So we sell it by the lap. Um, we have uh, experiences where you can ride along if you're not sure that you're ready to drive it and sell a car for about a hundred bucks. But most people will drive about five laps in a Ferrari or a Lamborghini and spend about four or five hundred dollars. Wow. Okay. That's interesting. And how do you deal with like obvious things like liabilities, right? If you put me in one of those cars, uh, I mean, 
I mean, I, I've crashed, I don't know how many go-karts. I would definitely crash because I love pushing the limits, right? So how do you uh, make sure guys like me don't do that? Sure, that's, a, that's an excellent question. First, I'm going to take your name and number down and put you on our blacklist. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, uh, we, we really designed it from scratch for that application. So it's not that we took a Formula One course uh, that's, that's uh, very difficult except for a, a highly uh, skilled uh, professional, but it's a place where you and I as novices can go and have a great time. So that means lots and lots of runoff, lots of safe areas to make sure that, that if something goes sideways, you're in good shape. Second, um, every experience is set up so that you would be uh, driving with, with a coach sitting in the right-hand seat. That coach is uh, equipped with an extra brake, so if perhaps you get in over your skis a little bit, he can help uh, bring, bring things back safely. But again, it's really just designed from scratch for people like you and I who perhaps don't have their training, they need to do it safely. So when you launched the thing, how much money was spent just on buying the inventory of cars? I'm curious. Uh, well, they're about $3 million worth of cars. Okay. Um, but I think your broader question is, uh, if you ever decide to do the same thing, what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to find a really big piece of property in some big city. You're going to want to get a really bright numbers guy, right? He's going to make an Excel spreadsheet. He's going to say, you're going to need this much to do this, this much to do that. Whatever number you come up with, that number's wrong, right? I've seen your model, but it's wrong. You're going to need some more money than that. turns out that it's, uh, it's a very uh, expensive undertaking. Uh, we moved about a half a million cubic yards of dirt. Uh, construction, of course, was very long. Uh, it was a crash course, no pun intended, in um, you know, politics and zoning and EPA and you name it. Uh, but um, about $3 million worth of cars. Aaron, you strike me as a guy that is an intellectual. I mean, I see the books behind you. I see, I think that's CNBC going on or something. Speed racing sounds like a great fun thing, but I imagine your brain is always itching, thinking about some next big opportunity. What are some things you're thinking about right now? Well, look, I'll answer out of both sides of my mouth. I'm a real fan of uh, focus, right? I think, I think uh, as humans, we're wired to do one thing at a time and do that one thing well. So I, I, I try where possible to, to, to make sure that I've kept my plate clear of as many distractions as possible. Uh, you owe it to your investors, you owe it to your team, you owe it to yourself to make sure that you you put in the time and put in the effort to make sure that something succeeds. Um, but you're right, right? I'm an entrepreneur and uh, I am always looking for something uh, stimulating and new and fresh and interesting. And the track is still very much uh, a passion of mine. Cryptocurrency is an area that I think is uh, is interesting. It'll either be a fantastic change to human civilization or it'll be a complete sick joke on all of this. I can't tell you which, uh, but that one interests me. Uh, but the track takes up a lot of my time today. Really? Okay. How do you exercise that interest in crypto? Well, at the moment, really, it's fairly passive. Um, I would like to see where things uh, un unfold over the next year or so. I'm a, I'm a bit uh, nervous when I read uh, things by folks such as uh, Warren Buffett. He's got some very cautionary things to say, or Jamie Dimon, some others that I think are really bright folks. And I think it's uh, a little naive to assume that um, the rules have changed. I learned that during uh, both uh, sort of uh, the, the dot-com crash of 99 and 2000 and then the economic meltdown 2008 uh, and come to the conclusion that n nothing changes, right? So uh, you can delude yourself and think that the rules don't apply or that nothing uh, um, uh, is different. But but um, it, we often find that uh, uh, what is new is it was once old. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm I'm nervous about assuming that all of our monetary systems will go away and everything will become digital tomorrow. I'm not sure that's the case, but it's still a very interesting space to me. Interesting. Speed Vegas, uh, you mentioned you know serving your investors. Have you raised capital on that? Oh, we did. Yeah, it was, uh, it's about a thirty-five million dollar project. So pretty good size oh, wow. project. Okay, so did you raise the full thirty-five million, or you put in ten and raised twenty-five, or what? Well, it was a, a bunch of different pieces. We did a, uh, uh, we've got land partners, we've got capital partners uh, to help with the construction side. We have some debt partners, so it was. Uh, we've really used all all types of financing to pull that project together. Interesting. And do you see this? Okay, this is more than just you know a rich guy with a passion project who loves racing cars. I mean, you you obviously have investors. There's debt on the books. Are you scaling this to other locations, or is it just Vegas right now? 
It's just Vegas. You know, um, maybe to answer the first part of your question, uh, I, I do like cars, but I probably like cars less than you might think, right? And and I think that's a real asset. Uh, and the reason it's an asset is because people who get into the exotic car space often uh, make decisions out of their own passion for a particular car. You know, they might find something new and decide to spend a lot of money on that, uh, as opposed to looking really carefully about every dollar that's spent on, on capital and making sure that there's a solid return for it. And so being one step removed from the passion side has allowed us to make sure that we make sound decisions, we deploy the right amount of capital where it makes sense. Um, I, I do love cars, but uh, not so much that I've been blinded to, to uh, the mistakes that have kind of beset a lot of people in the car space. Um, Vegas is a unique uh, market to kind of answer the second half of your question. Um, you know, the, the, the north half of America suffers from weather, which makes it difficult to do something Vegas is uh, strongly benefited by about 41 million people per year who travel from around the world to go something fun, to do something fun. And when they get there, uh, they, they think about value differently than, than, uh, than they do in their home cities. So for you and I, $100 at home is different than $100 spent at Las Vegas. You, you've worked hard, you're going to Las Vegas, you want to treat yourself to something fun. And so that really plays well into how we price our product and how we sell it. We're able to, to do things that I think wouldn't work quite as well from a pricing perspective in people's home markets. That's interesting. It's kind of like when someone's getting married, all rationality goes out the window, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Um, the second market perhaps that could make sense is something in Orlando or, or Miami, but um, that's got some some uh, difficult dynamics because Disney really owns a lot of the mind share in that town. So when you go there, it's with your kids and you're doing family things. And so this kind of a business may work, but I think Vegas is really a terrific opportunity for it. And when was year one? When did you launch the, the, the raceway? Um, let's see, we started, we did groundbreaking in September of 15. Uh, and we did a soft launch in April of 16 and we completed, uh, the, uh, the primary facilities in Labor Day of, of uh, 16. So it's been about a year and a half, maybe two years this summer. Okay, and this is usually an embarrassing number, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. Do you remember what first year revenue was? Uh, let's see, well, first full year would be this last year. I, our current run rate is around 10 million bucks, something like that. Okay, so that's fairly healthy. How, do the math for me, when you divide that, how many visits you know per, per year is that? It's, it's around 500 bucks average spend, so about 20,000 people a year. That's pretty healthy. Yeah. That's pretty healthy. And what are you, what's the number one way, way that you're kind of pulling people out of the Vegas strip experience to your location? Uh, it's a three-legged stool, perhaps four. Uh, I'll tell you all four, but three really drive it. Um, direct to consumer over internet is a really big part of what we do. Uh, I, I like to think that we're quite good at digital marketing, uh, and so that's a big area of investment for us. We're located on a major uh, interstate corridor that sits between uh, uh, Los Angeles and Las Vegas. So depending on the time of the year, 30 or 40 percent of the total visitors drive in. And so we have tremendous drive by access. That's uh, perhaps about a quarter of what we do. Another approximate quarter of what we do are large groups. So these could be everything from Rolls Royce doing a manufacturer uh, new model rollout uh, to, you know, pharmaceutical industry. They'll bring out a thousand people, uh, use the facilities, their beautiful facilities and do a beautiful event. And then the remaining quarter is really chopped up, right? It's everything from social and email marketing, casino hosts and uh, nightclubs and you know, billboards in town, things like that. Fascinating. There you guys have it from Aaron. Aaron, let's wrap up here with the famous five. Number one, what's the last business book that you read? Uh, I just read it yesterday. It's sitting right here. It's uh, finished first by Scott Hamilton. He is, I'll give you the, the cliff notes. He says, there's no shortcuts. Put in the time. If uh, a guy hits a thousand golf balls a day and you hit 10, don't think you're going to out, out punch him. Don't ever give up. You've got no disabilities. Swing harder. That's 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 uh, finished first by Scott Hamilton. I love that. Number two, is there a CEO that you really love getting breakfast, lunch, or dinner with there in Vegas? 
Oh, no, hands down. It wouldn't be in Vegas, but it would be Elon Musk. Uh, I uh, had the chance to visit his factory, SpaceX, about six months ago. It was a life-changing experience. That man's a maniac. Yeah, did you get to meet him in person? I did not, no. You did not, okay. All right, number three, what is your favorite online tool for building a business? Well, I'd have to put in a pitch for Twine Social. It's another company that I built. It's a social media aggregation product. Uh, it allows you to suck all of your social media together and visualize it beautifully. Uh, that's the tool I'd go to. Number four, how many hours of sleep are you getting every night? Um, I've begun to put a higher premium on sleep as I've gotten older. I used to think I could get away with it in six or seven hours, but, uh, like Scott Hamilton says, no shortcuts. So it's about seven, seven and a half. That's pretty good. And what's your situation, Aaron? Uh, married, single, you have kids? Uh, I'm married, happily married. And, uh, I have an embarrassing number of kids. I have six. Six uh, kids. Are you Mormon? Uh, no, but uh, <laughs> here's my problem. I, I got to come home to this every night. So oh, I say, okay, I, I can't make a comment there because I'll get in trouble. But six kids, course, that's amazing. Yeah. And I'm neither Mormon nor Catholic. I just, I just, I just love kids. That's awesome. And uh, so are you guys empty? I don't assume you're empty nesters based off just age. Are, are they all still in the house? Uh, I have a 19 year old who's uh, just off to college and then all the way down to three. So wow. And how old are you? I'm 45. Well, I would love to be a fly on the wall when all of them hit that magical age of 16 and go, Daddy, let me drive the Ferrari. Let me, let me learn how to drive on the Ferrari. They absolutely have. Uh, down to the 13-year-old. <laughs> all right, Aaron, take us home. Last question. What do you wish your 20-year-old self knew? Uh, I think I wish that my 20-year-old had a better understanding of risk. How so? Um, you know, I think... Um, uh, early on, I had some big wins, but I didn't, didn't do a great job of protecting myself from risk. So we talked about the dot-com uh, as an example. And I see people today that are doing really well in the crypto space and, and think that they're rock stars. And re the reality is they just don't understand the risk that they're exposed to yet. I wish yep. I knew that in real life. There you guys have it from Aaron. Had some success early on in the mail business back in 99, sold that company, then got into piracy and protecting kind of digital rights as these studios would move digital content online, sold that. Had a nice exit there. Now raised 30-ish, 35-ish million to launch Speed Vegas. Uh, they did about 10 million bucks their first year in business. He's looking now at scaling that, Aaron. And thank you for taking us to the top. Thank you.